Welcome to another edition of the Strategist Corner Podcast. I'm Rob Almeida, Global Investment Strategist and Multi-Asset Portfolio Manager. In this episode, I'm joined by Portfolio Manager Jim Fallon, where we discuss economics, the labor market, financial markets, and overall MFS's approach to low volatility equity investing. The views expressed are those of the speaker and are subject to change at any time. These views are for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a recommendation to purchase any security or as an offer of securities or investment advice. No forecast can be guaranteed. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Jim Fallon, thanks for joining. No, thank you. I appreciate it. Appreciate the uh, the airtime. So this will be fun. Um, you know, before we get into it, your how you think about the market, uh, particularly as a low volatility equity manager, we're going to go deep in all that stuff. Your background particularly is interesting uh, as a research associate on the financial services sector team in 08. But go back as far as you want. Give us a little bit of history and all those formative years. Oh, boy. (laughs) You don't want to go that far. But uh, at at MFS, I actually started in uh, securities lending. Okay. I was hired by Chris Haley to develop that platform. Chris, as you know, is uh, MFS's ultra marathoner. Sure. these 150-mile running races through the Alps and things like that. Um, And that program got up and running pretty quickly. Um, So I actually had this skill set, and I had an interest to to do more research. And uh, they were – the the research team, equity research area, was trying to build out a platform, and, and that was a natural transition for me. At the time, we had uh, three research associates supporting the entire investment staff. And I had no idea that MFS even had a quant team at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but once I did, I thought that would be kind of a good, uh, a- another door for me. And, um, you know, because I was, the models I was building for the fundamental team, it was all kinds of models, but a lot of the portfolio managers and analysts liked these models that were basically uh, taking their universe taking the metrics that they keyed in on, such as cash flow growth and certain profitability things, and then basically trying to uh, make their work a lot more efficient by narrowing it down to certain companies that they liked and identifying trends and so forth. Um, that's that's the short answer of how I ended up in the Quant Group. Uh, Quant Group was was then developing, and, and I landed there. Um, and I tell people I'm, I am the luckiest person at MFS because of my kind of uh, right place, right time track record. So um, just um, happened to be in securities, have have the securities lending skill, got that job. That was done at the exact same time that they were trying to build out the research associate platform. And as while I was there, they were trying to build out the quant team. And I had um, that type of interest and uh, sort of bias in my investment style. So when did you become a portfolio manager on the low volatility strategies? We officially launched those in 2011, but I was actually thinking about that a lot earlier. So uh, like really around the time of the tech crisis. So I was fortunate enough, if you want to put it that way, to be um, in research during the tech bubble as that was blowing up, looking at how people were exposed to risks. and that's another thing was we were developing out sort of this risk platform, looking at portfolios and a whole risk review process. That really started right around then. Right. So right. remember we had some. Sure do. Yep. Okay. So, 
So from there, uh, after that, I was thinking about, is there a better way to, to build portfolios that avoid all this stuff? And then I was on the financials team during the whole that whole situation. And so that further cemented my, um, you know, my, my thinking that there's got to be a way to just build a portfolio that's just durable yeah. and that doesn't care about when people are getting crazy chasing beta. It's got to be a better way. So your experience of the TMT bubble and your experience of the financial bubble sort of led you to there's got to be a, a, a different solution that's less sensitive yeah, yeah. to these. Yeah. And I was working on all kinds of portfolios. I was helping people out like Mannheim and uh, Marcus Smith, and we had a lot of customers. Global strategy. equity managers. Yep. yep. And um, and Joe Flaherty had taken over the quant team, and it was one of his first weeks here. Sat in my office, and he's like, "So, what do you do? What ideas do you have?" And I pitched a couple of ideas. He shot them down, and then um, I pitched this one, thinking he's he's not going to like this one either. And he said, I, I like that a lot. So, <laughs> so he's like, pull, pull together some uh, work and and we'll pitch it. Yeah. So um, that's how that it happened. That was like 2009, 2010, right. around there. Long yeah. time ago. Well, before we get into that stuff more specifically, so you sent an email to our chief economist and myself a few weeks back, and you were sharing some interesting observations about the labor market and this narrative that's been ongoing about Fed pause, Fed pivot, et cetera, which was really kind of the catalyst for you being here today. So maybe talk a little bit about what you were sharing. I think the audience will find that pretty interesting. Yeah, sure. I think there's this misconception um, that the Fed's going to raise rates, inflation's going to disappear, and everything's going to be fine. That's not how it works, especially, you know, as you know, when you have a period inflation just didn't all of a sudden appear. I mean, we've had QE for years. We've had negative real interest rates for years. We've had all kinds of things this time around, like we were talking about risk. This time around, you've had a lot of huge contributors to um, making people almost embrace risk, especially 2017, 2018, 2019. Your point being, so it wasn't just stimulus in 2021. This was years in the making. Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's no, it shouldn't be a surprise that we have inflation. I don't think anyone expected 9% inflation, I think, which right. is where it peaked. Um, but I think to think this is all of a sudden going to go away, like people saying, well, the Fed's been raising rates, and you know, why is inflation so um, stubborn? Right. That's, and that's to, to your question is that's usually how it works. Yeah. Um, some of the stuff I did, uh, you know, I went back and looked at, past cycles where the Fed ends up raising the Fed funds rate by 300 basis points. Right. And um, the, the, in the past five cycles, it, it's taken like years, like a couple of years for this whole thing to unwind itself. Um, and in one case, it was about six years before, in other words, the Fed starts raising rates, lands at a comfortable level that seems to slow things down, park there for a little bit yeah. until they start to see things like unemployment rise and and then um, they unwind the, that rate as the macro starts to deteriorate. Yeah. Well, it's fascinating to me um, 
so we've had the fastest or the, the greatest jump in inflation and rates in 40 years, right? So that's been well documented, well, well talked about. But when you start thinking of it through, how many investors lived through something like we had in 22? It's a very low number. So you got to go back 40 years. How many financial professionals lived through something like that? It's very few. You got to go back 40 years. But beyond market participants like yourself and people listening, it's also CEOs. Right? So there's very few people. Uh, in practicing business, funding projects, funding stocks, funding bonds that have lived through something uh, like this. And to your point, it takes time for the effects of these changes to flow through P&Ls. Yeah, that's, that's, it's so interesting, isn't it? Because if you think about it, I mean, we've had Brexit, we've had some hiccups over the past, you know, even, even, um, 2020, the COVID March yep. when things the lockdown. Up. I mean, we we just basically just poured stimulus in and you papered over it. You know, yeah, and yeah. So, um, it's um it's been a while since we've basically been accountable. Where people have been, you know, your capital allocation decisions as a CEO, you know, ha- have you got to think about what you're doing because there were no consequences. Yeah, or exactly. They were low. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not so easy just to go out and get money and, yeah. yeah. So I realize now we're turning this into an economic discussion, which you and I are not economists, but <laughs> I, I think about it simply to your point, the, the hurdle rate for investing, whether you're buying stocks, buying bonds, or you're a CFO making capital allocation decisions, is falls commensurate with rates. I mean, that's the whole point to create animal spirits and, and create money velocity. And the same works in reverse. So you've got now cash yielding four or five percent around the globe. One year treasury is comparable to what you're getting in the investment grade corporate bond market. It's comparable to the equity risk premium. So this changes things quite a bit. Yeah, it, it definitely does. So move it on to low volatile stocks. Given all of that, how do you think about that in the context of your universe? But maybe for the audience that might not have a lot of experience in that category, define for us what how the market thinks what low volatile stocks are, but maybe how what you think low volatile stocks are. So low volatility today, if you look at some of the passive strategies, they, they, they're basically consumer staples and utility stocks. Okay. And the logic is these are durable companies. At the end of the day, if the world's falling apart, you still need to eat. You still need electricity and, and heat and that, and that type of thing. Nobody takes a cold shower in the dark yeah, without exactly. soap. Yeah. <laughs> if you look historically, that it's Staples is usually there. But when I say historically, I'm thinking about when cycles unwind. Okay. You can go back as far as you want, um, and you'll see the same thing. You, you know, the tech bubble cycle, the global financial crisis cycle, the whole savings and loan situation, every single cycle that we go through, the high volatility stocks end up underperforming in the end. Mm -hmm. And those are the stocks, if you start to dig in and you look at them, these are the stocks that have the, that end up having the weakest fundamentals. You know, they have inflated margins, they have unrealistic earnings expectations, and, and people chase those stocks for a while. And you know they have crazy momentum and crazy valuations, and then the market inevitably has its day of reckoning, and everything falls apart. 
So that's, that's how I think of low volatility. Low volatility are the stocks that basically lower beta stocks that the market isn't chasing. Okay. And these tend to be your more durable quality okay. company. So also maybe stated differently, uh, lower variability of profits. Lower variability yeah. margins, is that fair? Too? More reliable cash flows, okay. yep. Yeah, lower volatility margins, all that, yeah. Okay, got it. From a valuation standpoint, I got to believe that there's a uh, gap between, right? So you're paying up for higher volume because you're, it's a call option on future potentially higher cash flows. So I'm sure there's a, there's, a, there's a delta between the two. What does that look like, maybe cross cycle, and then what does that look like today? So are lower volatile stocks more attractive from your perspective or, or not? Yeah, uh, right now they're more expensive. And that's kind of an interesting because if you go prior to 2010, mm-hmm. low volatility stocks were almost always cheaper than everything else. These, these are the boring companies. These yeah. are literally trash companies and and things like that. Um, they're not companies making you know electric vehicles or anything like that. Yep. Um, so they were always at a discount. Um, but then I think one of the things that changed around after the global financial crisis is people not willing to take that type of risk in their retirement accounts. So it, demand went up. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that that helped, you know, the, the the valuation premium not completely erased, but it shrank. Um, but one thing you do see is when people start getting nervous, they start to reallocate towards lower risk stocks. And that tends to end up with a, um, they tend to end up with a briefly a higher premium, and that's the case right now. Actually, that's not like an, a substantial premium, but it's starting to that that uh, yeah. How do you discern? So within lower volatile stocks, I, I've got to believe that there are maybe fake low volatile stocks, right? So volatility is just a function of assumptions. So if the assumption proves correct, it's going to be. There's not going to be a lot of volatility when the presumption proves incorrect. It becomes high volatile. So, in that universe, are there or what's the degree of at risk? Yeah, it's important because, and this is where you know the active versus passive argument just holds mm-hmm. during these periods because you can have a low vol stock and look at it, it's like why is the stock low vol? It's because it's a beat up business. Nobody wants it. It's just not trading. It's not doing anything. And everybody knows that's because a lot of investors know you don't really want this company. Like a purely low vol, passively low vol manager might just add this. Like, oh, they might just look at that metric and say, oh, it's, it's a lower beta stock. It's got lower standard deviation and just plug it into their portfolio. It gets more complicated in, 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 when you start thinking about covariance, which is an approach that, that we do. Because then you start thinking about how some stocks are correlated with others. And the idea is if you have two stocks and they're not correlated, that lowers your overall covariance. But the problem is like right now, what's going on is you see a lot of stocks in um, China and Hong Kong that are uncorrelated with other parts of the world. Okay. So you're, if you're looking at that pure you know, solution of the calculation, you'll want to add a lot more of that risk. Got it. From a, looking at it from a, a top down, I know you operate from, from a bottom up, but are there 
maybe you've just answered this, but geography, sectors or industries uh, that excite you more or maybe worry you more? I tend to leave that for the fundamental yeah. team. And we tend to have these constraints just because you, you never know what's going to happen. You, yep. you know, a lot of, I, I remember being in London the day before the Brexit vote. And I was in the cab and I, and I was talking to the, the taxi driver about, he's like, what, what do you think is going to happen? He's like, I think it's going to go through. And I'm like, you, you really think so? And he's like, yeah, I actually do. So um, a lot of people didn't think that was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, you never know what's going to happen is my point. Yeah. So to be all in on one region, I, I yep. think it's... Fair enough. Yeah. yeah. So you're relying on individual stock selection within that low volatility universe. Yeah, yeah. We st- we make sure we have hard rules around diversification. Yeah. And for the ideas and the portfolio, that's coming from the blend. So um, they're all stocks that our analysts cover and at least have they if they're not a buy, they're the analysts are comfortable owning. Yep. And most of those stocks are um very strong on the quant signal too. Right. So you're blending signals from the quant team that you sit in, signals from the fundamental team, and then you're doing the optimization over all of that. Exactly. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Um, so when I think back to, you, you talked about the increase in, I think, institutional demand coming out of the GFC for low volatile asset classes. Where is that maybe it, it, today in, in 2023? Because I would imagine right, demand probably went up after what you saw in 2022. But h- how do you think about it? Is it a is it a core? Is it a satellite? Is it or yeah? So you're you're helping me plug the piece that we have coming out. We did like a three page paper to help people answer this question. Okay, great. So uh, <laughs> so it, it's um, I see it as a strategic allocation. I'm not an advisor. I'm not a consultant, obviously, but mm-hmm. but especially right now, sure. you don't know how long this is going to last. Yep. You know there's going to be volatility. You don't know the extent of the volatility. Right. Nobody does. Um, so this is this this to me is a situation where you just for your equity piece, you have your low vol allocation. It's going to keep that exposure with while at the same time minimizing that downside risk if there is and I think there will be but sure yeah yeah well I mean it 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 makes sense and maybe back to our let's call it economic conversation inflation's not going back to where it was pre-covid so and maybe rather than state your view I'll, I'll offer this and tell me if you share this so if we're in a can we say a different regime than we were before um that should increase the premium or value for individual security selection on its own because you're going to have companies with a P&L that disappoints just in a different operating cost environment, both from labor, both from capital, et cetera. But then on the low volatile side, just overall, a more defensive asset in general should fare pretty well, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah, going back to that original rationale um, that... Why do high volatility stocks by the end? Why do they blow up? And it's because they just they they, they don't have as durable right. business models. Their the valuations are much more speculative. Yep. Earnings expectations are much more speculative. Whereas the lower volatility space, those are the healthier companies, if you put it that way. Well, the analogy I use, and it's the bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. So 
over the last 10, 11, 12 years, metaphorically speaking, the bird in your hand was disintegrating, right? It became inedible. Yeah. And so it forced you into the bush, right? So if you're a CFO or a CEO, you had to maybe acquire growth. Uh, you had to expand vertically, right? Low interest rates incentivized those those moonshots, but so did the weak economic um, environment. But now flip that, and you've got a very different rate regime, which I don't think we're going back to where we were before, and that just changes uh, the calculus dramatically, and you should see a lot more volatility in in P and Ls. Yeah, yeah. You, you you would think that this environment going forward is really this is where if you're active and you know what you're doing, yeah, this is going to be, um, you know, in terms of that whole active versus passive argument, this this would be a, a really good environment going forward. So, Jim, I've known you for a long time. You're a runner. You're uh, a musician. Uh, you're also a hockey goalie, or at least you, I don't know if you're still playing hockey. Uh, sometimes, yeah. Sometimes, okay. So you're also a very charitable guy. Um, if you could, let's say, be outstanding in one of the, I'm sure you're outstanding in all three, <laughs> but if you could be elite in one of those three passions for the benefit of one of your many charities, which would it be? Could be elite. Well, first of all, no one's ever described me as outstanding. Uh, especially in those categories, so that's a new one. But, but, but uh, if I could be, r- running gets painful after a while, so that one yeah. I'd scratch off. We're not young. And as a goalie, you you do take a, a beating. Yes. Y- you know, it's a lot of fun, but you know, I've had my share of bruises. So I'd say probably uh, the music. But even that's can that even that can you can get hurt know. from that. Well, I mean, like in terms of. Uh, <laughs> He jumping off stages? No, I mean like it. It can be tough. I I worked part time doing you know helping out the roadies and yeah. um, and I, I don't know if I want a career like. And they were so exhausted that we were just like, dudes, go, <laughs> go back to trailer, go to bed. And, and <laughs> well, Jim, thank you very much for this. Appreciate it, and we're gonna have you back. All right. Thanks a lot, Rob. I appreciate it. Thanks to Jim for helping us understand how MFS blends quantitative signals and fundamental analysis to build low volatility equity portfolios, a category we think many investors may want to consider for a strategic allocation. And thank you for listening.